I'm Kara Miller. This week on Innovation Hub, do voters influence the direction of politicians, or is it the other way around? When people haven't thought about these questions much and don't have well-developed views, and all of a sudden they're asked about them on a survey, the first thing that comes to mind maybe is what position does their party hold? And then they just parrot that back. Then what we're learning about the brain is shaping our courts. How do we take this data that had always been mysterious for the entire course of human history? We can now pull it out, but not with 100% accuracy, with all its warts. Um, What do we do with that? Plus, there's a difference between pleasure and happiness, and corporations know it. We have been sacrificing our happiness for the pursuit of pleasure, because pleasure got cheap. How our minds really work, coming up next on Innovation Hub. Welcome to Innovation Hub. I'm Kara Miller. Back in America's early days, if you were a politician, there was one thing that almost everyone expected from you. Booze. George Washington once ran for office in Virginia and supplied, and listen to the numbers here, 160 gallons of alcohol to 391 voters. James Madison, however, was not a fan of this booze-for-votes approach. So when he ran for the Virginia House of Delegates in 1777, he decided he'd run on issues and character, and he lost. We'd like to think of voters as well-informed, and they pay a great deal of attention to politics, but the evidence suggests that they have better things to do with their lives. In 2012, a political scientist named Gabriel Lenz wrote a book about what really influences voters. And Lenz said, look, people are focused on their kids and their jobs and paying the bills, and they don't care much about politics. And that makes us worry that they may be influenced by superficial things like uh, rum, rum punch on Election Day, as provided by George Washington. Lenz is an associate professor of political science at the University of California, Berkeley. And his book, which is called Follow the Leader, has gotten a lot of attention in the era of Trump. Because of what it can teach us, Lenz looked back at past presidents and he asked a simple question. Do we lead politicians on issues or do politicians lead us? For example, if most people in a given state are pro-choice and they only want politicians who are also pro-choice the voters are leading because politicians have to adopt the voters' view of things if they want to stay in office. That, Len says, is how we often think democracy works. Democracy is supposed to be about uh, voters expressing their will on public policy, whether or not they want more gun control or lower taxes or more school spending, and then politicians go off and do voters' will. But there's another version of democracy, which is um, uh, not one that we like to think about. But uh, when you look at the data, it's one that seems surprisingly prevalent, which is that instead, politicians tell voters uh, what to think. And voters uh, parrot, to some degree, those ideas back to us. In that scenario, we decide who we like. And if that politician says, I don't really like China's approach to foreign policy, then we say, yeah, we don't like China's approach to foreign policy either. That's the scenario which Lenz's data tends to support, and the one in which politicians lead us. 
which is not crazy behavior on behalf of voters. We're mostly busy, and instead of researching every issue, we find politicians that we identify with, and we allow those people to make the decisions. Lenz's findings shed a lot of light on the political moment we find ourselves in. We all believe that our views come from our own philosophies. When you ask voters where their views come from, they'll tell you, it's not my party. It's my own personal uh, views and my own learning and all all these things. And undoubtedly, that's true for many people, especially the kinds of people who listen to a great show like yours uh, (laughs) and who care about politics and pay attention to the news. Um, And the hard thing to remember is that's just not most, most people. And my... Uh, my favorite statistic on that is, and just listeners can think about this in their heads, what percentage of Americans know that the Democrats are more pro-choice and Republicans are more pro-life on abortion, which has been a very salient issue for many decades. Parties have very consistent positions. And yet, and I bet most people listening to this show know the answer to that question. But if you look at voters, it's about half of voters uh, seem to be able to uh, know um, or know that uh, question. Only about half of voters know that the Democratic Party is more pro-choice, Republican Party more pro-life. Yeah. That's true for most of the major issues that we can ask voters about. Uh, most people just don't pay enough attention to politics to know that. And if you're skeptical, I'd encourage you at your next family get-together or uh, office party when you're talking to somebody who doesn't care much about politics, ask them that question and you'll be surprised how often you'll get the wrong answer back from people. And I think that's the basic problem for a democracy in that you'll um, – when people haven't thought about these questions much and don't have well-developed views and all of a sudden they're asked about them on a survey – Uh, the first thing that comes to mind maybe is what position does their party hold or what position does their president uh, that they like hold? And then they just parrot that back. And uh, so a lot of what we see in surveys is very suggestive of that. And uh, my book was written a few years ago, but the Trump administration has been great on this front because Trump has taken a number of positions that are very different from the Republican uh, uh, Party. And yet surveys are consistently showing that Republicans are jumping on the sort of Trump bang wagon and opposing free trade, which has been a historic Republican uh, position to be supportive of free trade. And supportive of Russia, Republicans have generally been more anti-Russia. Um, um, and so very quickly you see all these sorts of switches. So part of the reason is that it's just about low information and voters not knowing much about politics and just having to come up with an answer on a survey. And I think that's one of the ways that this happens. What does that say to you? And I have seen some of those polls on Russia, for example, like – Republicans historically. Well, if you think back to 2012, the presidential candidate was Mitt Romney and Mitt Romney was asked, like, what is the biggest uh, threat to us internationally? And his answer was Russia. Russia does continue to battle us in the U.N. time and time again. I have clear eyes on this. I'm not going to wear rose-colored glasses when it comes to Russia or Mr. Putin. And I'm certainly not going to say to him, I'll give him more flexibility after the election. After the election, he'll get more backbone. And I think largely his party wasn't like, you're crazy. They were like, that sounds sounds fine to us. Um, And yes, indeed, Democrats now are a lot more worried about Russia than they ever were. Republicans are less worried about Russia. What does that tell you about the fact that, like, in some ways, if we like somebody or dislike somebody— it can totally change our view on a substantive issue. And it's all just due to, like, our love or hatred for a person. 
Yeah, yeah. Well, I think it, it tells it tells us a great deal, and it creates real concerns about the use of polling and democracy, and that you politicians they want to know what to do from voters to some extent, and they look to the polls for that. And the danger is that those polls often reflect just top-of-the-mind responses uh, to people that are deeply influenced by who's popular at the time, whether it's Trump or Mm -hmm. Obama or Bush. So it it makes it very difficult for politicians to actually read what voters want, Mm -hmm. and it potentially gives them a great deal of leeway to do whatever they want, Mm -hmm. which uh, could be good if those politicians are, are wonderful, and it can be very dangerous if those politicians aren't so wonderful. You're listening to Innovation Hub. I'm Kara Miller. I'm speaking with Gabriel Lenz, an associate professor of politics at UC Berkeley. He's author of the book, Follow the Leader, How Voters Respond to Politicians' Policies and Performance. Um, So to that point, this idea that, you know, politicians don't really have to look to voters um, or to polls to see what policies to support. um, You offer up this example from history. Uh, It happened during the 2000 presidential campaign. George W. Bush was running against Al Gore, and uh, Bush comes along and he proposes this idea uh, to invest Social Security money in the stock market. And, you know, whether you like the idea or not, it was something new, it was something creative. And Bush thought, uh, this is going to appeal to, you know, at least some segment of voters, and it's going to win me over a few people. I am here with a message for America and to put my opponent on notice. The days of spreading fear and panic are over. The days of delaying, dividing, and demagoguing are over. When I am elected, this generation and this president will save Social Security. But what you say is it didn't do anything because people had already decided what they thought of him. And policies were not really the way they were deciding. Yeah, that's absolutely right. So in the book, I look across many, many elections where we have great survey data uh, on voters and never find cases where voters start with a position like, I think investing in Social Security funds in the stock market would be a good idea, learn which candidate supports that, and then switch to vote (laughs) for that candidate or become more favorable. It's very hard to find uh, um, looking across many countries and many elections. Uh, and instead, it all seems to be the reverse process. And it makes you wonder, why do politicians focus so much on issues and care so much about this? I don't know if people remember that election, but uh, there was a great Saturday Night Live skit about how Al Gore wanted to uh, put Social Security funds in a lockbox and put the key uh, <laughs> under his car of the majority leader. My plan, Jim, is different. Rather than squander the surplus on a risky tax cut for the wealthy, I would put it in what I call a lockbox. A lot of time and energy was spent on that issue in that election, and yet there's very hard to find any evidence that anyone focused on it at all when they voted. And instead, they just learned their party's position or candidate's position and then followed them on the issue. Hmm. Let's talk about track record. Even if we don't really sort of tell politicians what to do by saying these are the policies we support, get on board, how much do we look at what they've done in the past, how successful they've been, and say, okay, well, I'm going to use that as evidence of what they will do in the future? 
Uh, so we have quite a bit of evidence that they do look at their track records, but they make a mistake when they look at those track records. Um, and it's one that has tremendous implications for our elections. So for president, the best predictor of who's going to win in uh, in the presidential elections are, is the economy in the short period before the election. Okay. And if it's booming, we reelect our presidents with overwhelming margins, like in 1984 with Reagan or 1964 with Johnson. Uh, And if the economy just turns down ever so slightly, even if it's just for six months or a few months, Mm. we throw them out. um, And uh, people referred to that as uh, myopic economic voting. And Mm. a metaphor that Larry Bartels and Chris Aiken, uh, uh, professors at Vanderbilt and Princeton, use is that they describe it as a game of musical chairs. The economy... uh, goes up and down. Mm-hmm. Politicians don't have that much control over it. There's been regular recessions over time. We can't predict them. So far, we haven't been able to stop them. They don't usually last very long. But if you're a politician and it happens to happen just before your election, you are out of luck. Mm. And there's not much you can do about it. And we probably do not want to be picking our presidents like a game of musical chairs. Mm. Um, but that's largely what we're doing. And do you see now there obviously have been specific issues I think about like gun control and you know obviously everything that has come out after the shooting in in Parkland Florida um and there's been a tremendous amount of uh push all in Florida specifically but at the national level and in different states for gun control But one of the things you found and that we've talked about is that individual issues do not tend to drive things. It tends to be more of how do people like candidates and how do they feel about the economy? Do you think that's up for any change at all this time? (laughs) Yeah, it's a really great question. So one one concern I have about my research on this topic is that we may only be observing cases where politicians haven't taken unusual or extreme positions. And so voters just don't have any good reason to pay enough attention. Um, and it's possible that Trump will step so outside the mainstream that more voters than normal wake up and start paying attention and start voting. And we're seeing some signs of that, um, especially in the turnout of younger uh, turnout of women has all been going up in these special elections. Mm -hmm. And so I'm hoping that maybe we will see an exception to the patterns that show up in in my book, um, where people do clue in, do wake up. Um, I think another thing to recognize is because most people don't pay too much attention, they're hard to reach. uh, But when you do reach them, um, and you do reach them on an issue that really does matter to them. Uh, you really can shape public opinion. Uh, there's a lot of slack in the system. There's a lot of opportunity for for leaders to get out there, for groups to get out there and mobilize and change voters. And we've had times in our past where turnout rates were higher than they are now. Um, and the other thing that's really important to recognize is although we see so much polarization and so much division among elites Voters mostly want the same things. They want good schools. They want good roads. They want good health care. They want good government. They want good jobs. Um, they want wage wage growth. These are the things that voters care about time and time again. And uh, if you provide those to voters and or make them realize that your current politicians are not providing them, 
I think that they, they really can pay great attention and, uh, and there is opportunity for change. Hmm. Gabriel Lenz is an associate professor of political science at the University of California at Berkeley. He's also author of the book, Follow the Leader, How Voters Respond to Politicians' Policies and Performance. Gabriel, thank you so much for your time. Thank you. A footnote to all this. Since the 1950s, our elections have gotten more national. And not elections you would expect to be national, like the election of a president. House and Senate races have also become more nationalized, meaning that whether you identify as a Republican or a Democrat increasingly matters. And how you feel about the president, do you love him, do you loathe him, that's going to impact how you feel about those who align with him. We've got the data on how elections have become nationalized. That's on our website, innovationhub.org. Every day, scientists find out more about the brain, which is great for science, but it has also prompted a bunch of dominoes to fall outside of science and medicine. One of those dominoes has been in the courtroom, where lawyers and juries and judges are increasingly interested in what brain research can teach us about intentions and incapacity and lies. Why did someone do the bad thing? Why couldn't he or she stop himself when a lot of others could stop themselves? Francis Shen is an associate law professor at the University of Minnesota, and he's the executive director of education for the MacArthur Foundation Research Network on Law and Neuroscience. He points to a case that may be extreme, but that puts brain science to the test. The case was Roper v. Simmons, which was brought before the Supreme Court in 2004, and it centered around a teenager named Christopher Simmons. Christopher Simmons, he's coming out of the state of Missouri, and he tells his friends before he does this bad thing that he wants to uh, kill someone and throw them off a bridge. They break into this elderly woman's house. He goes and does it. Um, uh, he duct tapes her. He throws her over the, the water. She drowns. He then tells his friends afterwards, you know, I'm glad we did it. He's bragging about it. He confesses to it. It was a great Supreme Court case because it raised this question of, wait a second. Yes, he's 17. He was 17 years old at the time. Okay, okay. Yes, he's 17. But boy, it sure looks like he planned. He knew what he was doing. This wasn't a road rage incident. That wasn't a gang fight in the back. Where How is it that we think that um, we should treat him differently? And indeed, the, what the prosecutor argued in that case was, yes, he's different, but in a way that should give us pause and treat him more harshly. Okay, so let's stop here for a second before we go any further. Simmons clearly did a terrible thing, and the prosecution wanted to give the jury the option of sentencing Simmons to death. But we've learned a lot about young brains in recent years, information the defense thought was important. Neuroscientist Francis Jensen, who I talked to a couple of years back, has written a book on the teenage brain, and she says, look, we used to think that young brains were like old brains, but with fewer miles on them. Science told us we were wrong. So actually, the front of your brain gets fully connected, fully hooked up for like millisecond to millisecond signaling, not until the mid to late 20s. It's there and it's partially connected, but the final process of making it, you know, fast access doesn't happen till later. Jensen is the chair of the neurology department at the University of Pennsylvania. She notes that when you're a teenager or even when you're in your early 20s, your emotions are fully loaded 
but your judgment, your planning abilities, they are not completely in place yet. And we do see that teenagers have greater challenges um, controlling their impulses, controlling emotional lability, if you will, and are very, very susceptible to peer pressure, which is, of course, giving them emotional, you know, giving an emotional cue to them without that frontal lobe to say, bad idea, probably shouldn't, you know, shouldn't jump off that cliff, shouldn't do this. What research has taught us about how we develop our judgment and make decisions that are rational, that ended up influencing the court at least on the question of, should Christopher Simmons, this 17-year-old who had admitted to murder, should he be up for the death penalty? And the Supreme Court said uh, no. Um, They, in a footnote in that case, and then later sort of uh, in these other two cases reaffirming that that decision, said that the developing brain is um, one that's less culpable and one that's more amenable to change uh, going forward. Is there a push to say... Let's not have the cutoff be 17. Let's spare people in the early 20s from the death penalty because it might have once been thought that you stopped being a kid or your brain stopped developing at 18, but no more do we think that. There is an active push um, from some to it's called raise the bar, both in terms of how death penalty, of course, but just even more generally, we've got a system right now. You've got adults and juveniles. And once you're 18, you're in the adult system. And so there have been some attempts, uh, for instance, in California and around San Francisco, to create young adult courts that would recognize that between 18 and 21 to 25, they're not quite fully formed adult yet, but they're also not 12-year-olds. How do we create a justice system that allows for that? Because right now you've got two options. You put them with the adults or, or with the kids. Neither seems too good. So we have to really reconceptualize the system. And that's what neuroscience and law is about. It's about saying, look, how, what do we understand about the brain, both in individual case, what might be changed, but it's taking a step back. How can we um, you know, change the system? And, and those conversations are happening. And some of the most innovative localities are starting to do something about it. You're listening to Innovation Hub. I'm Kara Miller. I'm talking with Francis Shen, an associate law professor at the University of Minnesota and the executive director of education for the MacArthur Foundation Research Network on Law and Neuroscience. Tell me some kinds of cases or specific cases in which neuroscience is entering law that we might not be aware of, like now that people are really making certain kinds of arguments or entering, you know, brain scans into evidence or whatever it is. Sure. So um, let me talk about the holy grail of neuroscience and law, which is lie detection. There have now been just a handful of cases in which a defendant has tried to introduce brain-based lie detection. Um, One was with uh, fMRI, so a big functional magnetic resonance imaging scan. And in both cases, the defendant wanted to say, I'm innocent and I want additional evidence to prove I'm innocent, so please let this expert testify with this brain-based lie detection. And in Let me stop you uh for a second. So that means, I assume... They're being scanned. They're in the MRI machine. And I guess people are asking them questions about, like, did you commit this crime? That's the idea. And they've previously asked them questions and gotten truthful answers, previously asked them some questions, and this is one of the methodological challenges, and instructed them to lie. So if I said to you, please say right now you're in Los Angeles, we're in Boston, you would be lying. We'll scan your brain there, then we'll scan. Okay, so you see what a lie looks like in my brain. 
my name is Kara, that's true, what the truth looks like, and then you try to figure out... the big question and with the big reveal. That's the idea. Now, there are all sorts of challenges, uh, scientific challenges, and as a result, in both cases, the judge in those um, cases decided not to let the jury hear that that evidence. Well, to that point, it seems like a serious concern when you get into very technical stuff and interpreting brain scans and all sorts of things that neither the jury nor the judge may be equipped. I mean, they didn't go to med school, probably, and they may not be equipped to really analyze what they're hearing or to cast a critical eye on the experts who are testifying. Like, who knows? They're they're trying to deal with things without real context. Does that worry you? It definitely worries me. And we've got a little bit of anecdotal evidence that um, some jurors could be persuaded. There's a defendant named Grady Nelson in Florida, and he did horrible things. He stabbed his wife over 60 times and killed her. He attempted to kill his stepchildren, just a litany of bad things. And it was clear that he was guilty. The only question in that case was, um, what was his sentence going to be? Was he going to death row or life without the possibility of parole? At sentencing, um, his attorney introduced what's called quantitative electroencephalography evidence. Big uh, name, but it boiled down to the jurors for these brain maps, pictures of a brain with the expert testifying about them. And Terry Lenneman's argument, so these are the lawyer's words now communicating the science, he said, um, Mr. Nelson has a broken brain. Doesn't excuse his actions, but it explains them. And pretty much said, ladies and gentlemen, jury, you ought to go with life. And they did. And three of those jurors spoke uh, to the media afterwards. Two of them said when they saw the brain scans, it changed their decision. One said it turned me all the way around when I saw that brain evidence. So the third one said, there's nothing wrong with that guy's brain. <laughs> but uh, but there is evidence that this could persuade jurors. And I think your question is right. I doubt that those jurors understood all the nuances of the, and certainly the judge, I th- don't think, of the, of the data and the procedures, but it was persuasive. Um, and it doesn't actually seem like seeing the brain scan changed anybody's mind. It was seeing the brain scan plus somebody telling them what that meant. Right. I mean, you could put a brain scan in front of 99 percent of us. I would have no idea what I was looking at. I would need somebody to accompany that scan and tell me. So then I'm very dependent on the accuracy and the, you know, the work that that person has done to tell me things accurately. Yes. And if much like the old old cliche, if you go into the sausage factory and you see how those images are developed, you might be very concerned. Mm hmm. Um, We've talked a lot about criminal cases. Do you think that our increasing knowledge of the brain is also going to change the legal system when it comes to cases that are not about murder or, um, you know, other terrible crimes? Are there court cases um, in that vein that stick out to you? Yeah, there's one big one. And uh, it's one of my favorite cases. It's called Allen v. Bloomfield Hills. I'll take you to Bloomfield Hills, Michigan. And there's a school bus coming and the crossing gate goes down, ding, ding, ding. And for whatever reason, the school bus driver swerves around and tries to get ahead of the train. Well, it doesn't work. The train collides with the school bus. Thankfully, there are no kids on the school bus. But we're interested in a guy named Charles Allen, who is the conductor of the train. A big train hits a bus. He walks out with nary a scratch, but he finds the school bus driver uh, horribly hurt. And Mr. Allen, the conductor, goes on to develop post-traumatic stress disorder. Mm -hmm. Everyone agrees he's got the PTSD, and pretty much everyone agrees that it was caused by this very traumatic incident. 
Here's the challenge. Michigan, like most states, has uh, an immunity, set of immunity statutes. You can't sue the government for everything. But there's a bodily injury exception. So bodily injury, what is that? If he had been walking and his femur was broke, he got hit by the bus, he could sue for the lost wages due to his broken leg. But remember, he was the conductor in the train. Not a scratch on him, but he has the PTSD. Legal question, the science question, the deep question, is post-traumatic stress disorder a bodily injury, a physical injury? The district court said, no way. It's, we've never, it's a mental injury. Mental and physical are completely different. Mm-hmm. The appellate court, however, and Mr. Allen introduced brain imaging evidence, followed his logic. And he argued that the brain is a part of the body. Post-traumatic stress disorder, even if we don't know it exactly what it is, we know it's physically in the brain. It's f- and therefore, you put those two together, PTSD is a bodily injury, a physical injury. Appellate court said, we agree, and it went up to the Michigan Supreme Court. There were amicus briefs from insurance, from plaintiffs that really drew a lot of attention, and it settled. So we don't know um, how these cases are going to work out, but to me, that might be the deepest question of all, uh, and one of the most challenging. Law is based on what's described as mind-body dualism, that the mind is one thing, and then the, the dual, the physical, is the rest. And when you say heart to heart, the heart pumps blood, matter of the heart, those are matters of the brain. Once we kind of culturally um, get our heads around that, we will need to re-envision law. And, and that's the longer plan. That's going to take centuries. But, um, but it's coming slowly but surely. And, you know, Alan V. Bloomfield Hills is an mm. example. If you think about where things are headed in the next 5, 10, 15 years, you know, do you see maybe a decision down the road or or some trend in terms of how neuroscience and the law intersect that you think, I, you know, I think this is coming even though it might surprise people who are not really focused on this particular area. Yeah, I think the big thing is that law has always, and clinicians too, but law too, have relied on really two types of evidence. What someone can self-report, so we'll ask you questions, and what others have seen or what we've observed now, you know, with video cameras. What brain science offers is evidence that um, potentially is not observable directly. You can look at me all the time. You don't know what's going on in my brain. You can infer it, but you can't see it. And I can't explain to you what's going on in my brain. And so when there's a divergence between what you see, what I consciously experience, and what we see happening in my brain, that is going to really challenge law. And I'll give you two examples on either end of the spectrum. With good uh, accuracy, we can take um, uh, brain scans of six-month-year-old toddlers and predict whether or not they'll end up on the autism spectrum at two years. At the back end of, of this, we are moving towards taking a bunch of clinical data, including brain scans, and telling uh, individuals with some decent likelihood whether or not they'll develop uh, Alzheimer's um, or another form of, of dementia. So suddenly, in those cases, you look fine, you feel fine, but there's something going on inside that suggests things aren't fine. And that's going to raise a host of questions, legal questions. Does insurance have to get involved? If someone committed a crime in that older state, is that suddenly a defense? Again, I look fine, I feel fine, but there's something happening inside that we can now see that may suggest I'm not fine. And we're going to see instances of that more and more, and law is going to have to reckon with how do we take this data that had always been mysterious for the entire course of human history, we can now pull it out, but not with 100% accuracy, with all its warts, um, what do we do with that? Um, and, and I see that stuff coming. I think people aren't prepared for it. I don't think the law is prepared for it. Hmm. 
Francis Shen is an associate professor of law at the University of Minnesota. He's also the executive director of education for the MacArthur Foundation Research Network on Law and Neuroscience. Thank you very much for coming in. Thanks for a fun conversation. If you want to know more about how the developing teenage mind affects behavior, we've got links to the work of neuroscientist Francis Jensen, who you heard from at the beginning of this segment. That's at our website, innovationhub.org. Doctors and researchers have known for decades that Americans have a weight problem. Many experts believe the turning point was in the mid-1980s. And once we started becoming heavier, we didn't stop. New data out in the last few weeks shows that nothing, not gym memberships or salad bars or low-calorie foods or any number of diets, has turned the tide. Now more than 70 percent of adult Americans are overweight, including nearly 40 percent who are obese. One man who is not the least bit surprised by this is Robert Lustig, who spent decades as a pediatric endocrinologist at the University of California at San Francisco, but who rose to fame a few years ago talking about our addiction to sugar. Of the 600,000 items in the American food supply, 80 percent are spiked with added sugar, specifically for the food industry's purposes, because they know when they add it, you buy more. In the last few years, Lustig has become worried that the problem goes way beyond sugar and beyond obesity. He argues that both American corporations and often consumers have conflated two words. And doing that has made us less healthy. Those two terms, pleasure and happiness. The difference between those two words might seem inconsequential. But, Lustig says, it isn't. Pleasure is the feeling of, this feels good, I want more. Happiness or contentment is the emotion of, this feels good, I don't want or need anymore. They're not the same. Happiness lasts. Pleasure is fleeting. Happiness is about sharing and giving. Pleasure is generally about taking or consuming. Happiness is not addictive. Pleasure is is. Lustig has seen in nearly 40 years as a pediatrician the effect of this confusion on kids in particular. It has changed how and when they eat, how much they sleep, and the degree to which they're drawn to technology. And it's led Lustig to write a new book, The Hacking of the American Mind, in which he writes about his own growing conviction that companies, in trying to sell us some short-term pleasure, have convinced us they're in the happiness business. As I was looking at the phenomena that we associate with obesity, particularly this new phenomenon, which isn't so new, called sugar addiction, and, you know, we can go through, you know, exactly why we can say that that phenomenon is real, Mm -hmm. it was very obvious to me that this is just one manifestation of a multitude of addictions that kids today now manifest, Mm -hmm. including cell phone addiction, uh, internet addiction, alcohol addiction at earlier and earlier ages. And we actually have the data on that. Uh, kids uh, alcohol addicted under age 18 hmm. going up. We have been sacrificing our happiness for the pursuit of pleasure because pleasure got cheap. Hmm. 
you've kind of talked about three buckets of things, as far as I can tell. You've got food issues, like a sort of addiction to food issues. Um, you've got things like uh, drugs and alcohol, um, substances. And then we've got technology, which is not a substance, is kind of an experience. What do those things have in common and how are they different in terms of being addictive and how they sort of play in our brains? Right. So the similarity that ties them all together is that they all generate a dopamine response in the reward center of the brain called the nucleus accumbens. And we have the fMRI and the PET scanning data for each of those to document and demonstrate that indeed all of those are happening. So in human terms, here's what happens. You get a hit, you get a rush, receptors go down. Next time, you need a bigger hit to get the same rush Hmm. because there are fewer receptors. And the receptors go down. And then a bigger hit and a bigger hit and a bigger hit until finally you get a huge hit to get nothing. That's called tolerance. And then when the neurons start to die, that's called addiction. Hmm. Every single one of those substances and behaviors that generates a dopamine response has as its end point addiction. And we have an epidemic of all of them. And to you, does like the massive rise in um, obesity, which we've certainly seen over the past several decades, um, and the obviously massive problem that we're dealing with with opioids, but heroin and but meth, I mean, a lot of things. Fentanyl, yep. Right, exactly. And I, I mean, you think about sort of uh, the tech situation as tech addiction. Do those things all like connect in your mind? Does like one thing lead to the other thing or or play into the other thing or make you more likely to have problems with something else? Absolutely. So it turns out those dopamine neurons, they're all the same. So it's not like you have a different set of dopamine neurons for food and a different set of dopamine neurons for tech or a different set of uh-huh. dopamine neurons for heroin. Okay, They're all the same dopamine neurons. And when you downregulate the receptors because you're addicted to one substance, you're addicted to all of them. So it's called addiction transfer. So if you take an animal, a rat, and you expose them to amphetamine for three weeks and then expose them to cocaine, turns out they're addicted to the cocaine too. They've never seen it before, but they're addicted to that too, Mm -hmm. called addiction transfer. So when people stop smoking, they start drinking. When people stop drinking, they start eating. When they stop eating, they do something else yet again, and usually actually go back to smoking. So the fact, uh, you know, this concept of addiction transfer is well described in the uh, addiction literature. You're listening to Innovation Hub. I'm Kara Miller. I'm talking with Robert Lustig, the author of The Hacking of the American Mind, the science behind the corporate takeover of our bodies and brains. He's also an emeritus professor of pediatrics at the University of California at San Francisco. So uh, since the government seems unlikely, at least anytime soon, to heavily regulate companies that, um, you know, as you argue, are trying to conflate happiness and pleasure, uh, whether we're talking about tech or food or alcohol companies, how does an individual person navigate this world in which there's a ton of temptations and make sure uh, that what you're aiming for is happiness and not just momentary hits of pleasure? Number one, connect. And connect does not mean Facebook. (laughs) I was going to say, that sounds a lot like technology. No, it's not. It's the opposite of technology. It's real connection. So 
I want, Facebook is connectivity without connection. Sherry Turkle, media watcher at MIT, right mm-hmm. there in Boston. Yep. You, you're familiar with her. Sure. I'm, she's been she, on your show. She has indeed. She coined the term alone together. Mm-hmm. And that's what we are today. We are alone together. We are not a community. We are individuals Okay, with this funky network that basically makes us miserable. That like button on that Facebook post, that is dopamine. It's also depleting serotonin. Now, if you ask Mark Zuckerberg, he'll tell you, well, yes, depressed people use Facebook because they are looking for social validation and this is a potential way of getting it. And that is true. However, if you look at the time lag analysis data, which we have, on anybody who uses Facebook, they are more depressed two weeks later than they were going in, no matter where they started. And we have those data, um, you know, and, I, and I have them in the book. So Facebook is not connection. It is connectivity, not connection. Human beings are connection. Number two, contribute. And that does not mean to your IRA. Contribute means outside of yourself and not for individual monetary gain or credit. So Boy Scout badges do not count as contribution. So we're talking about volunteerism, altruism, philanthropy. You can pay somebody else to do it for you. Everybody wants to know, can you get contribution and uh, serotonin from work? And the answer is yes, with two provisos, that you can see how your work benefits others and your boss can see it too. If both of those are satisfied, you can actually derive contribution and serotonin from your work. But if not, then you're going to have to engage in something else. Number three, cope. And cope is three specific things. Sleep, mindfulness, and exercise. Now, sleep. 35% of American adults get less than seven hours of sleep, and 23% are clinical insomniacs. One of the reasons is the blue light from the video, from your cell phone, Mm -hmm. from your iPad, Mm -hmm. from the TV. Mm -hmm. Um, That is actually keeping your midbrain up. And, of course, kids are, you know, staying up till 2 in the morning texting and chatting uh, online. Okay, Then they have to get up at 6 in the morning for school, and they're all passing out. And, you know, it's one of the reasons for ADD. So the concept of sleep has to, you know, um, as Arianna Huffington said, you know, we have to sleep our way to the top. Right. (laughs) Um, Indeed. Uh, Mindfulness. Perhaps the most pernicious, horrible word in the English language of the 21st century is multitasking. If you can't multitask, you can't get a job nowadays. Well, it turns out only 2.5% of the population can actually multitask. The rest of us are serially unitasking. And every time you switch tasks, you get a cortisol bump, which only activates that dopamine even more so and actually stresses you out, lowers your serotonin, and makes you miserable. So mindfulness. So the concept of basically actively doing nothing, you know, mindfulness-based stress reduction. And number three is exercise. And it turns out that exercise is better than SSRIs at alleviating depression. And then finally, number four, the big one, cook. So it turns out there are three nutrients that matter in terms of happiness and serotonin. They are tryptophan, 
Tryptophan is the precursor to serotonin, and you get it in eggs, fish, and poultry. Not exactly high in the processed food echelon. Number two, omega-3 fatty acids, because they are anti-inflammatory. And if you look at the brains of omega-3 deficient rats or mice, they have this inflammatory haze around the synaptic boutons where the serotonin is released, preventing its release, and which goes away when you give the omega-3s back. Um, so you get better serotonin neurotransmission when you consume omega-3s, and you get that in wild fish and flax. Again, not exactly high on processed food. Mm -hmm. And number three, you want less fructose, less sugar. Sugar ups your dopamine, downs your serotonin. And so what you want is a high tryptophan, high omega-3, low-sugar diet. That's called real food. Hmm. Finally, I just wonder if you can situate the U.S. for me. Um, I know that, you know, I think yearly there's a study of what countries are our happiest. We're never among mm -hmm. them usually. I think no, Finland <laughs> is often high. Denmark is very high. Switzerland, Denmark, right. now, uh, Norway. They have yes. sugar. And they have, yes, they, they have Facebook, I think. And um, they have alcohol. And they and have they alcohol have all and things. all that stuff. Right. And they right. search on Google and all that. So what do happier countries know that somehow we don't really know or are not kind of attuned to? Um, I'll tell you what they know that we don't. They know that it's not about health care. It's about health. Hmm. That's what they know. We think... A pill can fix it. Turns out there is no medicalized prevention of any of the chronic diseases that we are currently facing. There's treatment, and the farm companies are very happy to treat you for 20, 30 years and make billions and billions of dollars. In fact, they've all abandoned acute care medications for chronic care medications because we're all on them. Okay, 50% of people over the age of 40 now take a chronic disease prescription medication. That's not true in other countries. Is there a way, do you think, to incentivize companies to help us be healthier here? Um, I mean, because it seems like mostly companies are doing what's totally logical. They're acting within their own best interest. They're selling us as much of what they have to offer as possible. But maybe there's some sort of a different path uh, that would be more in our best interest uh, than in theirs. Absolutely. The problem is that we would have to change the business model. So currently, companies are rewarded for doing the wrong thing. You have to basically incentivize them to do the right thing. Now, let's take an example. Let's take food. That's an easy one. Mm -hmm. We have this thing called the farm bill. And the farm bill supports the production of commodity crops. And commodities are storable food, fiberless food, food that you can put through a mill, take away the fiber, and put in five-pound bags. So corn, wheat, soy, sugar. Turns out all of those are bad for us. They make money by using commodity crops that are subsidized in order to make processed food, which is killing us. The food industry grosses $657 billion a year. We spend $3.2 
trillion dollars a year on health care, of which 75% is chronic disease, of which 75% would be preventable if we could turn back the clock to rates of 1970 before processed food entered our world. In other words, we are spending $1.8 trillion a year cleaning up the food industry's mess. We spend triple what they make cleaning up their mess. That is unsustainable. Now, what if instead we actually got rid of subsidies and let the market dictate what different foods should cost? All of a sudden, it wouldn't be a problem for companies to be able to sell fruits and vegetables because they wouldn't be um, uh, bet against because you wouldn't have any commodity crops that you'd have to try to undercut. So the Giannini Foundation at UC Berkeley did this modeling analysis of what would food look like and prices look like if we got rid of all food subsidies. And the answer is, wouldn't change. Only two items would actually go up. Corn and sugar, exactly what we want to go up. Robert Lustig is an emeritus professor of pediatrics at the University of California, San Francisco. He's also the author of The Hacking of the American Mind, the science behind the corporate takeover of our bodies and brains. Robert Lustig, thank you so much. This is great. This has been a true pleasure, Carol. And if you'd like another perspective on how big corporations have changed our diet, we've got an interview with Michael Pollan. I talked with him a few years back. It was a fascinating conversation about the intersection of processed foods, fiber, and gut bacteria. That's on our website, innovationhub.org. Thanks to the people who helped put together this show. Senior producer Matt Purdy, associate producers Mark Solinger and Mark Filipino, and engineer Doug Sugertz. We also have production help from Alec Graney and Rowena Lindsay. From PRI and WGBH Radio, I'm Kara Miller, and this is Innovation Hub. PRI, Public Radio International.